it, there are a lot of movies I might feel bad about talking over, <laughs> but I've been saying that I feel like talking over and Goggy is kind of a public service. <laughs> <laughs> Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. It's the follow-up episode, in which we look at new releases on subjects we've already talked about. We head to the jungle for a return to Kino's Golden Age of Exploitation Pictures series, with the notorious Ngagi. And two glimpses of filmmakers and stars trying to do good work under the Nazi regime with releases of Louis Tranker's The Kaiser of California and Hans Albers in Port of Freedom. But first, subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at the podcast app of your choice, and avoid a fate more hideous than being taken prisoner by Ngagi and knowing you'll miss out on future episodes. In the late 1920s, the noted explorer Sir Hubert Winstead led an expedition to the Belgian Congo, where he captured extraordinary footage of a shocking ritual in which a native tribe sacrificed women to a local tribe of lust-crazed gorillas. Nothing in the preceding sentence is actually true, but that's what audiences were told about the 1930 film Ngagi and the result was a huge hit which influenced Girl Meets Gorilla angles to a number of notable films over the next few years, most notably King Kong. Ngagi has long gone unseen, all to the good, some would say, but now a restored version of the film, from prints held by the Library of Congress, is out in Kino's series Forbidden Fruit, The Golden Age of the Exploitation Picture, which we talked about with producer Brett Wood last March. Horror movie writer-historian Kelly Robinson, a Bram Stoker Award nominee for her piece on the Edison Frankenstein film in Rue Morgue magazine, provides one of the commentary tracks on this release, and she joins us to tell us the strange and twisted saga of Ngagi. You know, I was wondering this as I was writing the narration. Is it Ngagi or Ngaji? It is pronounced Ngagi. Ngagi, okay. But here's the thing. In the movie, the narrator says Ngagi throughout the entire thing. <laughs> and and that's why in all of the later pop culture references, you know, in the Three Stooges and all, you know, the times it pops up, they all say Ngagi. I was only kidding, Ngagi. Honest, I like it. Look, go ahead, do it again. <laughs> because they saw the movie like everybody else, and the movie says Ngagi. But uh, it it is a word in the it does mean gorilla in the Rwandan language. Oh, it does okay. And the Rwandan yes, in Kinsha Rwandan, 
Ngagi is the word for gorilla. So that's the correct pronunciation. And that may be the most authentic thing in the entire movie. Well, but they say it wrong in the movie. No. So, well, the <laughs> fact that they got the word right is true. Yeah, it's a, and you know something that's uh, interesting to me in the lawsuit that was brought against it? I've, I've looked at all those court documents. They say in the film that it's a, it means gorilla. Uh, it's a, in the film, I think they say in the African language, as if there's only one. <laughs> right. um, but it says uh, that they have consulted dictionaries in thousands of languages, and uh, they've not been able to find it. So it was, they say that's made up. It's like, well, that's actually not true. It is a real word. And I'm curious how, who consulted all the supposed foreign language dictionaries. You know, it's not like they could Google it right. in 1930. <laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> All right. So let's, let's back up to the beginning of this thing. I mean, there had been any number of successful um, African travelogue movies showing off a lot of you know, animal life. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I, I think of like Martin and Osa Johnson and who did those through mm -hmm. the 20s and things like that. Uh -huh. And so how did Ngagi come along as, as this faux travelogue? Why they want to do a travelogue as opposed to any other number of ways that you could get skin on the screen? I, To be honest, I don't know if skin on the screen was their top goal. Because if it were, maybe there'd be more of it. Uh, because <laughs> you have to sit through a lot of travelogue <laughs> to get to the skin in Ngagi. Right. <laughs> maybe that was part of the ploy because, you know, they thought, well, you know, it's like the blow off at the end of the uh, sideshow striptease or whatever. You know, yeah. it's like, okay, you wait, you wait, you wait, you wait. Ah, there's a boob, you know. Uh, finally, <laughs> um, but they certainly did tease the audience with it because if you've seen any of the marketing materials for Ngagi, the posters are pretty sleazy. But depending on which marketing you look at, I mean, they played up the gorilla pretty big too. Uh, travelogues and jungle films had been so successful, not just the ones that showed off, you know, naked naked African women, but a lot of people were in it for the jungle footage too. And when you look at uh, the early reviews of Ngagi, I mean, that's what was blowing people away just as much as anything else. And that still kind of mystifies me because it, it, the, the footage they were, you know, they lifted the jungle stuff from, the real jungle stuff was, you know, 15 years old at that point. Right. And I'm astounded that people still thought it was interesting, but I guess it's just, you know, people didn't have the access to zoos and National Geographic Channel and that kind of stuff like we do now. So I guess it was just still pretty exciting to them to see footage of animals. But yeah, we didn't have uh, Wild Kingdom from the Mutual of Omaha back then. Right. right, right. So people were pretty excited about the, you know, the charging lions and all the animal hunting and stuff that's in the film and. It didn't look good, but, you know, they explained that away as the tropical climate, you know, <laughs> rather than this film is practically decayed by now. But And the uh, the charging lion is actually the only star in the picture, I read. 
in that he oh uh, the, did you read that it was the Selig lion yeah or that it's the MGM lion is what I read claimed you think that's like, uh, the... yeah I've I've read a lot of accounts that uh, said well and and accounts from 1930 uh, one of the early critics of the film that that blew it wide open said he recognized the lion from the Selig Zoo. So, and uh, some other people have, have recognized animals as being some of Felix. Uh, that's something I dug into. And uh, the, the cameraman for the, uh, the sequences that are not stock footage, the film sequences of the supposed right. uh, explorer, <laughs> <laughs> um, the cameraman for those sequences said that they filmed it at the Los Angeles Zoo. Uh, there's some funny comments he made about it. I mean, he said, you know, they're supposedly in the jungle, but he said there were times where if his camera had strayed just a little bit to the right, uh, the scene would have had Sunday picnickers in it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So they put together this thing out of stock footage and, uh, a little bit of zoo footage and Char- Charles Gamora in his famous gorilla costume, which I guess yes. wasn't necessarily famous yet as his, his, some of his biggest roles were yet to come. Um, then what ha- you know, then, then they have this movie. What happens? What happens is that it is extremely popular uh, a lot of people really like it, uh, but some people start to be really skeptical of it, and uh, some articles start to come out that say, hey, this movie is maybe not what it's cracked up to be. Uh, in particular, I can't remember what paper it was, uh, there was one reviewer, I think in L.A., who pointed out all manner of inconsistencies and abnormalities, uh, things like, uh, and some of them may be exaggerations. Um, uh, although the film probably looked a lot better then, so maybe he did see smallpox vaccination scars, <laughs> <laughs> but noted that the, the pygmies were actually children. Uh, I think the specific words he used is the, that they look like Farina. Um, he he's the first person I think to bring up the charge that the lion is from the Selig Zoo, uh, and in particular, he recognized one of the native women as somebody from LA's Central Casting. Hmm. So you know the lid was blown off of it, and uh, other people started uh, claiming, "Oh, okay, I knew it was a hoax all along." You know, it, it was a big a big story at that point of of people giving their opinions. Is it? You know, do you believe in it? You know, well, I think it might be real. Well, I think it's fake, you know. And uh, theaters capitalized on that. They would uh, show it uh, and, you know, announce, you know, to people like, hey, make up your own mind. That would become part of their ballyhoo, you know. Come come see it yourself and decide if you think it's real or not. <laughs> it almost, to me, is kind of like how YouTube videos or hoaxes like that are today, you know. I mean, some video goes viral and then somebody's like, that's faked. And then, you know, then everybody wants to see it, see if they think it looks fake or not. Yeah. So, so the, the whole idea of this is maybe fake kind of just made it blow up even bigger. So it made a, it made a crap ton of money. 
That is for sure. Uh, and ultimately was sued and uh, banned by the uh, FCC. But it took so long for it to be banned that it almost was kind of useless because it made um, it made four million dollars in 1930. And as a point of reference, uh, because I personally didn't know how does that measure up, you know, so I dug into it a little bit. And as a point of reference, one year uh, later, uh, Chaplin City Lights domestically made $2 million. Yeah. <laughs> That's huge. That's huge money. <laughs> yeah, I was looking at one of the ads online and it's, you know, it's all about be sure you have your seats, you know, make, res you know, get your reserved seats. Uh, yeah. And stuff. So people were lining up for this thing. They literally were. So, and they, uh, the theater managers, you know, went all out. And I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of these, but uh, the, and that was in the era when they sometimes, you know, they would deck out the lobby, decorate the entire lobby for certain movies and stuff. And they would did the lobbies for uh, Ngagi and, you know, made the whole whole lobby and ticket booth looked like a jungle uh, and hired uh, local African-Americans to dress up like natives and, uh, you know, hold spears and walk around the lobby, which was just, you know, adding to the exploitation there. Uh, some towns, they, you know, dressed a guy up in a gorilla costume to run around outside and scare people and that sort of thing. Which probably made Charles so, Gamora seem more credible. You know, when you you've got the, <laughs> right, the local guy right? the local guy with his threadbare gorilla costume and then Right. That's a really good point. Yeah, because if you've got a guy running out around outside in a gorilla costume from the local costume shop or that, you know, a lady from the church sewed up for you on the weekend <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> and then you go in and see Charlie Gamora. Yeah, that's a really good point. Then you're going to believe that's a gorilla. All right. So the, the, you know, it's a big success and, and leads to some uh, imitations in upcoming films. Um, in fact, Charles Gamora turns up kind of you know, doing his part in another setting in the sign of the cross. Right. Yeah. Uh, another film that's got gorillas assaulting yeah. <laughs> nude women. Right. Uh, Tied to posts in the Coliseum. Yeah. A lot of people talk about uh, Ngagi's influence on King Kong. And a lot of people say that that influence is overrated and I think both things are kind of true because the, the the influence on the story of King Kong, okay, I mean it it maybe sort of did, you know, gorillas a gorilla dragging off women, uh, but it certainly wasn't the only film that that had that idea. So it certainly wasn't the only possible source for the story of King Kong. That's true. So it may be overstated as far as the story, but. Uh, but as far as RKO being willing to sink so much money into King Kong, 
I think that is because of Ngagi. Yeah, yeah. So story or not, it's like, okay, this gorilla stuff, you know, pays off big. It's big Let's it's big box office, boys. Gorillas, yeah. that's what the that's what the public wants to see. Gorillas and women. Yeah. And they, you know, they took out kind of the unsavory, more unsavory aspects of it. And Made it romantic, yes, with Kong. Yeah. Yep. All right, so huge hit in its time, but hasn't been seen much since. You say it was it was actually banned, uh, not because of yes. content, but I mean not because of the salacious content, but because right. it claimed to be a real African exploration, you know, expedition footage, and that wasn't true. Right, because it was a hoax. Yes, yes, because it was a hoax. So, uh, yeah, it was banned by the. Uh, I've been saying FCC, but it's the FTC, isn't it? The Federal Trade Commission. Uh, yeah, so it was banned, but it had been, you know, so widely circulated by the time it actually got banned that it, you know, I don't know that it had that huge effect. It didn't necessarily have a huge effect on it making money in its time, but it did have an effect on the fact that then it disappeared. Because, you know, who's holding on to this movie if we can't show it anywhere? Of course, it did kind of get shown because it got, you know, sliced up and retitled and shown as as other movies for a while. But uh, no, but it's been, you know, not seen publicly in all that time. And I saw it uh, and a lot of people believed it to be lost. I knew that it wasn't. I knew the Library of Congress had it. And I think also I think UCLA, uh, but it it was often being written about in pieces about lost films. You know, everybody was wanting to see it, especially once they heard the description of it, of, you know, crazy gorilla lust stuff. Uh, but, you know, you couldn't get it on video or DVD or anything. And if you wanted to see it, you had to trot your butt down to the library of Congress and sit <laughs> in a little booth and watch it, <laughs> which is what I did six years ago. And I thought I never ever dreamed that it would be getting a a release. <laughs> I'm still kind of shocked that anybody plucked this out and put it out. So it's a tough watch. I think you know it's almost a case of be careful what you wish for with all the people who have been dying <laughs> to see it. It's and <laughs> I uh, I've, I have I'm I'm pleased that. Uh, Several people who have watched it and have watched the commentary tracks have all said, this is one you want to watch with the commentary track. Because, <laughs> you know, it's a difficult watch. It's a difficult watch for a lot of reasons, you know. Yeah. Starting with that it takes a long time for anything to happen, but also that, you know, the the racist aspects of it are are difficult. Uh, and then there's all the animal slaughter yeah. There's a lot of animal slaughter in this film. And, you know, some of these are animals that we now know are endangered. Right. And we're, you know, and those are the real sequences. That's the stock footage from, from actual real hunting expeditions. And they're just tormenting these animals all over the place. So, but gosh, they, they exploited the people and the animals for all their worth in this film. So, yeah. Did anybody from Ngagi go on to do anything else? No, no, not really. 
Although, oh, this is a bit of trivia that didn't make it into my commentary, but I was looking at the 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 woman credited with editing the film. And I thought, you know, she kind of, she did more work than a lot of the people did right. because, you know, <laughs> she actually had to cut together all this stock footage. So she she's actually doing something here. Uh, Grace McKee, and I looked her up and uh, Grace McKee was good friends with another film cutter, Gladys Mortensen. And she... Uh, was good enough friends that she ended up becoming the foster parent and guardian to Gladys's daughter, who was Marilyn Monroe. So, yeah, the the film cutter for Ngagi raised Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So uh, that's a, you know, that that is trivia for sure. <laughs> yeah. So any particular discoveries that you made in your research that made their way into the commentary any any really juicy tidbits some of the things that i was most uh that i got the biggest kick out of when i was researching it was finding the ways that it was uh promoted in little towns across the country uh you know and i mentioned um how they decorated the lobbies and stuff but there was a there was a town you know i can't remember what state it was but it's in some nothing town somewhere. There was a, a soda shop that advertised in Goggy Sundays <laughs> during the run of the movie. And I loved it. I don't know what it was, but I want one. <laughs> so things like that. <laughs> and a Sunday, especially the idea of because a Sunday is such a wholesome seeming thing. And this movie is so sleazy. <laughs> So the idea that the soda shop is promoting this movie, uh, there there also was a promotion in one town where uh, they invited uh, Boy Scouts. <laughs> Boy, this, this Boy Scouts thing is nothing like I thought it was going to be. Right. <laughs> I wonder how many of those friends, you know, decided to join the Boy Scouts right. after seeing that because they were like, wow, this is... <laughs> Uh, also, uh, I really like there's a, a women's group in Los Angeles that published a monthly bulletin of their movie reviews. You know, it was like a women's social circle sure. thing. And they would put them out every month and sell it for like a nickel with their opinions of movies. And then they would also put at the end of each film review, like it's suitability for children and when Ngagi came out, they put out their Ngagi review and they just raved about it. They raved, raved that it was just such a great nature documentary. And, and they were just swooning over the bravery of the explorers. And, uh, and then one month later, <laughs> they printed a retraction in their bulletin. <laughs> they had to withdraw their review and opinion of that film and, and in particular, they thought it was particularly awful because it might turn people off of other important documentaries. But <laughs> I love picturing like Aunt B and Clara, right. you know, I mean, just those types of, you know, women's knitting group ladies who are just appalled. <laughs> I'm amazed, though, that they loved it the first time. And that's the thing that's hard to wrap your mind around is, you know, that these women 
from 1930 went to this movie and thought it was just so wonderful. And it really, it's something I explore in a lot of detail in the commentary is why people were so willing to believe that that's how a gorilla would behave and also willing to believe, you know, that these women in this African tribe were, you know, seemingly going along with this because the movie kind of suggests that too. Uh, And it, you know, it's really tied up with uh, just a lot of misinformation and also with racism. You know, people were willing to believe these things about an African tribe because of ignorance because they didn't know, you know, they bought it. They bought it because they didn't have, they didn't have any authentic representations of native Africans to compare it to. Right. I think with Ngagi, I hear, I've heard people say about it in particular and about other movies of its ilk. They make this comment that uh, maybe it would be better off if it were still lost (laughs) or maybe some movies shouldn't be found. Yeah. And you know, ha ha funny joke, but that's such a backwards take on, on film preservation because it's, it's all important. And as abhorrent as some of the ideas in this movie are, I think it's important for us to be able to look at, you know, where we've been, you know, so we can understand how far we've come and, and look at the, the parts of this film that are objectionable and understand why they're objectionable and also look at, you know, why was this not objectionable to people then? And, and those are important things to know and to understand. So, you know, every movie isn't for public consumption. I mean, you know what I mean. I mean, yeah, you yeah. don't want to show this at the Sunday church matinee or, you know, today you probably don't want to show it to Boy Scouts, their friends. <laughs> but, but you know, for for researchers, for, you know, people who want to better understand this context as far as how it fits into exploitation history, how it fits into jungle narratives and all these sorts of things. Yeah, we, we need to preserve these films. All films deserve preservation. Ingagi is out now in Kino Lorber's The Golden Age of the Exploitation Picture series. There will be a link in the show post at nitrateville.com. A typical Western scene. Gamblers and dance hall girls and cowboys gathered at a bar, and then they speak. Dann brennt San Francisco, and then Pockfarm, dann wird aufgereint. In 2018, I talked to Rudiger Zugsland, director of a documentary about films made under the Nazi regime, Hitler's Hollywood. Here was one of the most important film-producing countries, comparable to Hollywood on a technical level, and yet its films were almost unknown in English-speaking countries, for pretty obvious reasons. In many cases, the films reflected the propaganda needs of a fascist regime. Yet, as Zuxland's documentary showed, there were important and talented filmmakers in Germany during this time 
who wrestled with being true to their art while under the thumb of studio chief Joseph Goebbels. In this episode, we'll look at two of these films, utterly obscure to English-speaking viewers, but fascinating, well, to me anyway, for the light they shine on working as an artist in Nazi Germany, and both about to come out in restored editions from Kino Lorber and the Friedrich Wilhelm Murnau Stiftung. First, Louis Trinker was one of Germany's leading action stars of the 20s and 30s, sort of a German Randolph Scott who made mountain films in which he showed off his prodigious climbing skills. Astonishingly, well into the Nazi period, he made a western, and actually shot parts of it in the American West. Der Kaiser von Kalifornien has Trenker enthusiastically clambering around the Grand Canyon as Johann Sutter, the German immigrant who kicked off the California gold rush. Film historian Dr. Eddie von Mueller, who's contributed to TCM and Filmstruck as well as doing many Kino commentary tracks, does the one on the Kaiser of California. I spoke with him at his home in Atlanta and started by asking, who was Louis Trenker? Louis Trenker is what we would probably call today the ultimate multi-hyphenate, right? This is a guy who was a producer, he was a writer, he was a director, he was an actor. He's really a, a, a sort of a one-man band, but that doesn't entirely capture who Louis Trenker was because Louis Trenker uh, had an identity and a persona and a career that really transcended his film work entirely. He was also uh, a veteran of the Great War. He was an athlete, in particular, uh, a skier and an alpinist, a mountain climber, at a time when uh, mountain climbers had a, a, a significant amount of prestige in Germany and in Central Europe. So he's... He's really this sort of multi-talented, uh, larger-than-life kind of a figure. And his almost complete erasure from cinematic consciousness and from film culture uh, speaks volumes about what the 1930s and 40s did to Germany and to German cinema and to how history has processed that period since. Well, and he's also kind of a genre unto himself as the leading star of mountain films, which is something we don't have in America. So maybe tell us what a mountain film is. Yeah, the mountain film is a, a kind of a unique generic offshoot. There are uh, a few of these that you can identify uh, around the world, but many of them, like you might, you might think about the, the wuxia film in the Chinese-speaking world or the American Western, right? But whereas the American Western eventually sort of outgrew the United States and in fact became popular in, among other places, Germany, mountain films really – don't have uh, a clear corollary outside a very specific moment in history. What the mountain film was, was an intensely nostalgic and romantic genre that flourishes primarily in the teens and early 30s 
in Germany where there is this mystical association between these brave men who face death to scale peaks uh, and that uh, transcendent experience that they have on the mountain. And and it's it's not it's not Louis Trenker's own genre. He is a, a, a an iconic part of it. Uh, but these films were very, very popular in the the sort of pre-Nazi and early years of, of the Nazi era. Well, and I think it's interesting to compare it to the Western because the Western, the hero is kind of one man against another man or against a mob or a, a crooked town or something. And here it's one man against nature. Yeah. Yeah, it is it is it is man against nature, but it's also man against himself. Right? The 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 mountain becomes metaphor, which mountains have always been, but the mountain is metaphor for that ultimate challenge to the will of the individual. And I think will is the the operant term here. Uh because also Western films are very often films that are to some degree reactionary, right? They, the, the Western genre isn't, isn't always about guys who are going out to tame the wilderness because they want to tame something, right? You got something like the searchers where, you know, you're hunting down the, the, the Indians who kidnapped your family, you know, whatever. Um, this is really, uh, a genre that focuses on, um, on people who are going out to challenge these mountains volitionally. And I, I think it, it harkens really in the same way that the American Western harkens back to certain uh, tendencies in culture and thought in the United States in the 19th century. This really harkens back to, to the Romantic period in, in European history. Yeah, no, it... it... I often think of like William S. Hart while watching him because there's something kind of the same, you know. It's a the West is just a big stage for a moral drama in in Hart's case, and there's there's somewhat of a similar attitude here. Not exactly moral, but you know, kind of I don't know, abstracted in a similar way. Well, absolutely. I I think you can all you can also see a lot of uh, you can see a lot of Errol Flynn in how Trenker moves through space and how he depicts his 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 own persona and his own body right these these are the the kind of man of action right very kinetic um very dynamic and uh i i think that that one of the things that probably didn't uh, help as his career advanced is he does have have kind of a silent filmmaker's approach to performance uh, and to staging, but uh, yeah, I think I think I think Hart and the Western are, are very good analogs for for sort of the overall project. I, I also think it's it's important to to place him in a context that is much more overtly and emphatically political than American cinema has by and large uh, been. Uh, American cinema usually 
throughout much of American film history, uh, you avoid sort of emphatic ideological claims because you don't want to alienate part of your audience. Uh, But because of the nature of European cinema at the time that Tranker is working, he is – all of his films are in one way going to become uh, implicated in various kinds of um, political or nationalist ideological projects. Right, and I think you know it's it's important to note that he was resistant to the Nazis and kind of wound his own career down rather than continue, continue to support them by making these kinds of films. But nevertheless, his films do kind of support you know German ideas of. German Manifest Destiny or something like that, which gets to be really odd when it's happening in our country, darn it. Well, right. And I think – but see, this is I, – I think um, I think, I think you, you raise a good point, and I think it's a point we shouldn't shy away from because uh, authoritarianism and various kinds of, of let's say, um, militant nationalism, these are things that crop up in lots of places, including in the United States. And while I think it is uh, fair to say, as you did, that to some extent, Tranker held himself aloof from Nazism, um, that's not you. That's not that's not the case throughout his career, and he certainly was what we would, I guess, think of as Nazi adjacent. In that, what he wanted to do as a filmmaker was useful to the Nazis and was compatible with the, the way that, that the Nazis wanted to, to depict certain things. And he, he undoubtedly benefited by the fact that his, his films were, were compatible with that agenda. Um, you know, the, the, the whole issue, I, I think for much of his career, and certainly later when he's rehabilitating his career, Trenker does not even identify as a German. His his identity is is much more tied to the the, the regional identity of, of Tyrolean. But during during the period of Nazism, there's this flattening, right, where there is no German identity permitted that exists outside the Fuhrer cult, outside Nazism. So, um, you know, I I it's it's fun to watch. I think it's fun to watch. Um, Trenker threading this needle, right? Where on the one hand, he can't be critical of the regime. He can't be uncompatible with the Nazi agenda. On the other hand, he is not himself, uh, you know, a dyed-in-the-wool ardent fascist fan, right? So he has to sort of thread this needle or walk this this tightrope, um, which artists often wind up doing if you're working in a national cinema or in a period of time when uh, when there is a very dominant ideological presence that you have to sort of curry favor with or at least avoid offending, you know, you, you've got to walk that tightrope. Now, it's interesting to me that here we are deep in the Nazi period, the late 30s, if not the war yet, and he's doing international co-productions. I mean, I've seen The Challenge, which ha- is an English film that mm-hmm. has a, a German counterpart. And then Kaiser of California, I mean, he actually shot in the United States, a Nazi film shooting in the United States, which is astounding to me. It's crazy, right? Um, well, I think uh, 
uh, one of the things I love about being a, a film historian, Mike, is that uh, film history is full of curiosities <laughs> and compromises and unexpected bedfellows. And here is the bottom line. The bottom line. Cinema has been, from the very beginning, a global industry. At the turn of the century, most films shown in America were French. After World War I, most films shown in, in the world will be American. Right? There, is, there has always been this very strong international trade. And from the, the standpoint of filmmakers everywhere in the world, right, you are looking for a budget and you're looking for distribution. And that's as true in 2021 uh, as it was in 1933, 34, 35. So Hollywood doesn't want to alienate and close off the German export market any more than U.S. steel or standard oil wants to close off the German export market until it's unavoidable. Right. And there, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy, but you know, triumph of the will showed in American theaters and American movies are showing in movie houses in, in Hitler's Munich and Berlin. So there is this, this rich cultural exchange. He is very aware. Trenker, as a filmmaker, is very aware of the American style of making movies. Um, he is aware of the American audience. He is fishing for work in Hollywood, and he had, in fact, worked in Hollywood and on you know some co-productions. It's funny, well, or it's striking, just how cosmopolitan Los Angeles was as a filmmaking town. Right. He's coming to Hollywood in the, the early 1930s. And this is a period of time where we have, you know, Marlena Dietrich and we've got Bella Lugosi and we've got, you know, we'll, we'll get Alfred Hitchcock by the mid 1930s. Literally people from all over the world. And here's why I think it's important to mention this. When the Nazis really begin to consolidate control over the entire apparatus of German culture, not just the government, but publishing, broadcasting, cinema, the whole, the whole shebang. Um, we get this tremendous exodus of film workers out of the German cinema who are going to move west, um, the majority of them to Hollywood. So we know that there were filmmakers who chose exile rather than opting to continue to work under the new German cinema, which was controlled by Joseph Goebbels and the Nazis. And I think it is worth noting, and again, I'm, you know, I've got no dog in, the, in, in this particular fight. <laughs> but I do think you have to take note of the fact that, you know, Fritz Long, who's half Jewish, gets gets offered the opportunity to stay and run, in large part, filmmaking in Germany. He bails. 
Most of these guys bail. Lots of these guys bail. Trenker stays. Now, that doesn't mean he's a Nazi. That means that he makes a decision as a filmmaker that that he is going to be able to do what he wants to do more effectively or, you know, there, there are some indication he was concerned for his family. He was estranged from his his wife, but he has a family there. Um, and there are lots of people who, after the war, are going to be like, look, I would have loved to have said something critical of the regime. But, you know, it was a bad time. Um, so, again, it, it, it's like I, I don't I don't I don't want to see Tranker pilloried and his films certainly shouldn't be erased but that global community of filmmakers created a space and it still creates a space for migrations and transformations of careers and he did not for whatever reason avail himself of that fairly welcoming community of formerly German filmmakers in Hollywood. But instead, he is going to do this very interesting thing, right? As you note, he's going to wind up making a film with Scandinavian capital, a German crew, uh, and American locations. And it's a film that is very evidently making a, a powerful play to win over an American audience. Now, if it was in German, how is it making a play to win over an American audience? How I think how I think it it makes a play for winning over an American audience is what we think of American identity today uh, did not exist in the 1930s. Uh, America was uh, a a a place that was far more conspicuously than it is today. Uh, made up of very distinct regions, sections, and identities. So in the 1920s and 1930s, you still have a lot of American cities, for example, that have German-language newspapers. Yeah. How many cities have a German-language daily today? Yeah. <laughs> you know, how many Yiddish papers are there? How many, you know, there's there's some Chinese and Korean papers, maybe, but, but there, you know, we are still coming out of this period where uh, America's population doubles in size, you know, every 15, 20 years for most of the 19th and early 20th century. So one of the challenges facing America, one reason why America really sits on the sidelines for a long time, both in the first and then in the second world war, is there are a whole lot of Americans who would think of themselves as, uh, as German Americans or as German immigrants or as Swedish immigrants, or, or what have you. So one of the interesting things that I think this film is doing, and one of the reasons why I, I find it kind of a fascinating film, is it's a film that's sort of trying to, um, somewhat disingenuously, but movies are always a little disingenuous, uh, it's a film that's trying to underscore the Germanness of American history. And sort of uh, right into the the Western context, which is that most American of film genres, right? It's trying to sort of write uh, Germany and uh, or a, at least a, 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 a German kind of culture hero 
in the form of Sutter into that narrative. It's a reminder of the connection. And remember, he comes from the mountain film, which is all about a mystical connection between people and the land. And he's working for the Nazis who are going to use that mythos of blood and soil, of Lebensraum, of Heimat, of the people and the land, right? Yeah. So that's something that's like, that's a big part of his DNA as a filmmaker. And what he's going to do is he's going to sort of try to transplant that and embed it in the fertile soil of the American Western and be like, hey, we have this spiritual connection too. In the 1930s, right, Hitler's going to play this game where he's going for Liebenstraum in the east, and he's trying to reclaim German populations. He's trying to reclaim the Germans in Poland and reclaim the Germans in Austria and reclaim the Germans in Czechoslovakia. Right, so claiming the, the German diaspora is part of Hitler's project. At the same time, he's kind of trying to reassure the West, England, etc., that is fellow Anglo-Saxons, right, that they don't have anything to worry about. So America, right, America is a country which during this period of time is struggling, and I would argue today is still struggling, with the question of, are we an Anglo-Saxon country? Yeah. Are we a country of, of white Christians from Europe? So I think that this, this, this plays very persuasively to audiences, some of whom would have been familiar with Trenka, Trenker, both because they've got family back in Germany and because some of these films right, have American or English language counterparts. So I, I think this is a film that's trying to kind of play that global aspect of cinema in a way that's reassuring to an America that's a little ambivalent about what's going to happen with a newly rearmed, newly remilitarized, and and sort of newly assertive Germany. Now, do we know anything about the production of the film? Did anybody think it was weird that there was a German crew stomping around the Grand Canyon or – you know, he had worked, he had done some shooting in Hollywood before, he knew a number of people in Hollywood, and of course there is a big, uh, there is a big diaspora of German, especially German Jews in Hollywood, especially at Lambley's Universal. So um, he, he, was, uh, he was definitely not typical, but it's, it's also worth pointing out that it, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't nuts – um, you know, if you think about going way, way back, you think about early travelogue films uh, of the turn of the century in the teens, um, going to exotic locales is something that filmmakers do. Now, what I have to say, what must it, so, so having film crews at the, the Grand Canyon, you go to the Grand Canyon tomorrow, there's going to be a film crew from like Beijing or Malaysia there anyway. <laughs> but what I would say is what had to be a little bit weird is that they are going to have these, these this fairly large cast of German speaking actors in American costume um, shooting out there. That, that, that must have been a bit of a novelty. But again, Hollywood is the crossroads of the world. Now, um, I was not able to find a lot of reviews for this film. Um, 
to to work from. I, I had to mostly use you know historiography from Germany on Tranker and and on this period of time. Um, it 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 does come at a time when his relations with the party and especially with Joseph Goebbels are, are becoming more strained. Um, and it, it, it does not appear to, to have, uh, made the Nazis terribly happy though. Part of this may have just been that, you know, this is the ultimate regime of control freaks. And while Tranker is in the United States, he is not under direct political control. So I say, I think it's a very good film. I, I think it's quite, I think it's quite impressive. Um, formally uh and i i think trenker is uh an incredibly charismatic actor and um you know i i think it speaks to uh, a level of sophistication that uh the, the sort of the 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 common party line if i can be permitted that the party line is that the nazis killed german cinema that they they censored and controlled it into banality and uh, sort of workmanlike propaganda, uh, but actually I think there are a number of film workers who do extraordinary things under that regime, um, and that it, it it's complicated. It's complicated to praise a work of art fostered by a totalitarian regime, but I would I would say that that Trenker's uh, Trenker's film work invites that challenge. Uh, as much as I love German cinema of the 1920s, that's an aesthetic movement that changes film style and film genre. The films made during the 30s in Germany are films that for mostly for ill, but they're films that didn't change film style and film genres. They changed the world. So maybe we need to pay a little more attention uh, to Trenker. Uh, alongside uh, Cabinet of Dodger Caligari. That's Hans Albers singing La Paloma in the film Grosse Freiheit Nummer 7, known in English as Port of Freedom. Who was Hans Albers? The biggest male star of mid-century German cinema, kind of its John Wayne or Jean Gabin. Port of Freedom has been called the first post-Nazi film, a neat trick when it was made under the regime in 1944. But director Helmut Koitner's melancholy picture of sailors in Hamburg's St. Pauli Red Light District, recreated in Prague because of bombing in Hamburg, suggests a war-weary Germany which has already passed Nazi fantasies of world conquest and ubermenschen. And Koitner proves to be a major European filmmaker in the tradition of French poetic realism, well worth rediscovery. Film historian Olaf Müller, who's written for Film Comment and Sight and Sound, sets the context for Port of Freedom in his commentary track on the Kino Lorber release. I spoke with him in Finland, where he teaches, and asked him to explain why this film and filmmaker came to stand for so much in the post-war period. 
Well, it's difficult where to start. I mean, because the film has an almost mythical dimension for for Germans. It's um, it is the Hans Albers film. So the star of the film, Hans Albers, is one of the biggest male stars in the history of German cinema. So he starts in the um, late 20s. You can already see him in Blue Angel right. uh, in a small role. And he saw, he's, he's this daredevilish guy, good-natured, a man of good morals, and above all, a daredevil, uh, indomitable. So, and he was really the male figure that Germans very much identified with in the 30s, 40s, till the 50s. And um, this film features really the performance of his lifetime, so to speak, and the performance that people identify him with. With this sailor, with this, melancho with this melancholic guy, in essence, with this yeah, with this uh, rascal that he is, good-hearted rascal, um, and yeah, very much a seafarer. This was a very central part for uh, for him. He did play quite a lot of different roles. He was an adventurer on land as well as uh, on the seas, but for his persona, it was the, the seafarer was extremely important. And in this film, he also sings La Paloma, which became the most famous rendition of that song in German. What is quite nice to know is that um, Helmut Keutner, the director of uh, Große Freiheit Nummer 7, Port of Freedom, had actually written a new set of German lyrics for actually this film. And this became, these lyrics became so famous that these are by now the kind of official German lyrics. Most people are probably not aware that there is an older set of lyrics for La Paloma. And Hans Albers doing La Paloma, I mean, this is where you really go to an essence of how Germans see themselves, or Germans of a certain period see themselves. There was a song in the, what was it, in the 80s, um, where people were singing, I am I am, the, I am the blonde Hans, and I play uh, for the dance. And uh, there you had actually also um, excerpts from the film looped in, so to speak. And so the blonde Hans, uh, the blonde Hans, that's really what he's acting out here. And um, yeah, it's basically, it's a film that really, really, really back then hit a nerve with German audiences. And it has continued to do that. This is really an iconic German film. Well, and, he, you know, for being the biggest star of his time, he avoided identifying with the Nazi regime uh, most of the way. Well, you know, <laughs> I mean, like okay. everybody, he was making his compromises. So he despised the Nazis, and the Nazis knew that. They knew that he was. They did not have a friend with uh, in in Hans Albers. But on the other hand, Albers is in several really big 
propaganda movies. And he was certainly lending his image, so to speak, or at least his acting abilities to the regime. Then again, I mean, there are very, very few people who did not do that, so to speak. Koitner might be even the one in terms of directors who was the, the sneakiest of them all, who kind of found a way to really avoid any kind of excessive um, engagement with the Nazis. But still, even he made a film uh, like Auf Wiedersehen Franziska. Then again, the propaganda aspect of that film is so blatantly displayed as a propaganda um, effort that it's almost like a, like an alienation effect Brecht style. So, <laughs> so I mean, Koitner was a very, very clever guy. But yeah, basically, Albers was certainly a symbol of a different Germany. But on the other hand, yes, a different Germany that still collaborated. Albers was certainly somebody who could not completely escape the regime, but then again, who could? Well, you know, the film of, the film of his that's the most known in America is certainly Munchausen. It's probably the only film from deep in the Nazi period that has been seen at all widely here. And the the scene where he is sort of tempted by Cagliostro and he rejects his will to power or whatever he's offering there. I mean, it's very easy to read that as sort of an older Germany rejecting this charlatan who comes in with you know dreams of mad power and stuff like that. And it's basically not that, let's say, um, wild, crazy a reading. Please remember that this film was under pseudonym, written by a staunch opponent to the Nazi regime, Erich Kästner. Right. In the same way that everybody knew that they kind of had to cut their deal with the regime. The regime, on the other hand, knew that they could not antagonize people too seriously. Which also op opens up this rather curious question about um, the planned censorship of um, Große Freiheit Nummer 7. Because this, I mean, as I said, the film is also a myth because it was immediately mythologized after World War II. Um, the film was finished during the war. The film was forbidden to be shown inside the German territory, or the, as they put it, the original German territory, because it opened commercially in occupied Denmark, um, and it had a premiere screening in occupied uh, Czechoslovakia in Prague, where the film was in good part shot in studios, but it could not be screened inside the original territory of, uh, of, of Germany. And um, after the war, a lot was really made of, oh, the big forbidden film, blah, 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 blah. And um, but the curious thing is nobody knows actually what the problem was. We know from Goebbels' diaries that he wanted to cut stuff but we don't know what. And Goebbels is also not very specific what made him nervous. 
So it's it's really people have been fantasizing about what could have been the problem with that film. And uh, we do know that the production already from the beginning was troubled and that Goebbels had awkward feelings about the project from the beginning, starting with the title, because the original title of the film is Große Freiheit, Big Freedom, um, which had to be then changed uh, into uh, Große Freiheit Nummer 7 to make it clear that this is about the address in St. Pauli and not about the more general allegorical thing about the big freedom. Right. This was a film originally intended as a kind of a paean to the bravery and excellence of the German merchant uh, navy. They were not happy where this project was going. But on the other hand, they still let it continue. Even when the screenplay was there and it was very clear that this is a film about guys who are pretty rowdy, etc. On the other hand, yes, good-hearted and decent, but also quite rowdy guys. There were always awkward feelings about this thing. Still, it was made. And in color, as almost an experimental film in the use of aquacolor. So this is a very daring project in, 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 its, in, its, in its own way. So who knows what the problem was? <laughs> but that there was a problem was known. And they really blew that up. And um, the funny thing is we only know very well what the problem was after the war. That we know. Because um, we know that um, one scene in the film was later for the general release edited out because I think the, I think the Catholic press was objecting about the film being a little bit too nude. Please mind that there is no nudity in the film, but we have our main actress in um, in an undershirt on, in bed. But this was objected to and taken out back then, uh, which is again also bizarre because in Nazi Germany, you do have quite a bit of nudity in the films. We should remember, for example, Veit Harlan's uh, Opfergang, where you have full frontal nudity of Harlan's wife, who is one of the biggest famous stars of that period. Well, let's talk about Koitner. I mean, you know, one of the things, I mean, he did manage to work all through this period, but there is kind of the contradiction that he's essentially kind of a humanist director working in an inhuman time and place. He's... You know, that one of his films, uh, Unter den Brücke, is fairly clearly draws on things like Vigo's La Talente, uh, and, you know, has kind of a tie to that sort of poetic realism. How did a man like that flourish in the Nazi film system? Well, you are not even mentioning the probably the most complicated thing, that he actually started out as a political satirist. So it was always clear that the guy hated the Nazis. <laughs> they knew that. We had basically put it on stage. But Kolkner was the chosen. 
Goebbels loved him. Goebbels worshipped him. He was always talking about um, Keutner as the great avant-gardist. Hmm. Keutner is this thing where, I mean, they were in awe of his genius. And the thing was, as long as he didn't contradict them explicitly, being a humanist as such was not a problem. If you were, let's say, not you a humanist towards Jews, that would have been a problem. But we don't have that here. I mean, it's a similar case with a director who compromised himself much more, um, Wolfgang Liebenleiner. Liebenleiner was, it was clear that he's great. And um, which is something you can't say with that ease about, about quite a few of the directors that were officially closer to the Nazis and actually also kind of courted. I mean, Karl Ritter was not a great filmmaker. He was a good filmmaker and a decent craftsman, etc. But he was not great. But Liebenleiner was great and Keutner was the greatest. So, um, and he's not the only case, so to speak. I mean, somebody like Wolfgang Staute is also already active during the Nazi period. And he was a communist. Huh? Yeah. yeah. On the other hand, uh, Staute was also acted in, was as, a, as a bit player in quite a lot of propaganda efforts. Huh? I guess as long as you weren't explicitly against the Nazis, they were not against you. And they certainly did value talent. They also had great disdain for the lack of talent. I mean, there are quite a few directors and films uh, that are totally pro-Nazi, etc., that the Nazis did not look kindly upon because their films sucked. <laughs> it's tricky, so to speak. I mean, it's we, we always imagine this just like with places like the Soviet Union or fascist Italy or fascist Spain as... Uh, we imagine this a little bit too simple. The reality of dealings with the um, regimes was much more complicated. And indeed, talent was something that was valued because it was a value. It was always the question of how far do you push against them. So you might say that a talent that would go into the generally, let's say, agreeable sphere of um, of humanism, like um, like Keutner was somebody who would not have a big problem. I mean, look at somebody like in Italy, Mario Camerini, also a great bourgeois humanist, um, very well liked, very successful during Italian fascism. They let him do whatever he wanted to do. And even he made, he made even a film that was really supportive of a fascist regime, uh, which Kortner never did. But so basically, people like that um, could exist. And the fact that they had talent also protected them. So Goebbels was just another studio head, except... In extreme cases, he could have you shot, but but basically, he was just another guy in the front office that you had to sort of get okay. your your point of view across to. Uh, whom did Goebbels shoot? 
I don't know. Um, the guy who directed Titanic, I guess, he went down in a plane crash. Uh, no, you are mixing up two things. Oh, okay. uh, the guy who, who directed Titanic was Herbert Zalpin, and we, I mean, again, um, it has been a myth that Zalpin has been uh, killed by the Gestapo. I mean, uh, there is actually a book about Zalpin, and uh, they are saying as much as we would like to really <laughs> say, yes, he was killed by the Gestapo, but every evidence, every shred that we can dig up, the guy really committed suicide because he was scared. Huh. Well, yes, basically Goebbels could send you maybe in a concentration camp or something like that, but... Um, which happened with a few people, and they also sometimes got out again. So, but um, yeah, he. But in many ways, yes. In with at least with cinema, Goebbels very much behaved like uh, like a studio head. <laughs> and I guess this is how he saw himself, at least with regards to the film industry. I'm not certain how he um, saw himself with regards to other, um, let's say. Um, uh, arts for the propagandistic aspect, like radio or so. But I mean, he, he was a great—he was a great uh, film lover and a man who did understand what makes a good film. In that regard, I'm tempted to say that um, Nazi Germany was definitely not as dangerous as uh, the Soviet Union, for example. Right. I mean, that was really dangerous. Um, but, um, and indeed, there people did get killed, and not few, uh, not a few. So tell me about uh, Koitner's, you know, career as people finally did get to see this film as, and as he continued working in the 40s and 50s. Well, he actually continued to work uh, also through the 70s. But um, Koitner is, I mean, Koitner was venerated, he was very, very popular also as a character. People knew who Helmut Koitner was. And Koitner is also very present, maybe also because of this, in his own films. You very, very often hear his voice as a narrator. He is actually present in quite a few of the films, sometimes only with a walk-on, other times really as an on-screen narrator. He is actually also present in uh, Große Freiheit Nummer 7. He plays uh, uh, a small role, a role that actually um, somebody like me, who is from Cologne, considers extremely insulting. <laughs> because he, he shows a man of Cologne finding Hamburg and the Hamburg girls... Um, more attractive than Cologne. This could also only come from the brain of somebody from Düsseldorf, <laughs> which is where Helmut Koitner comes from, which is our not very beloved neighboring city, with which we have <clears throat> cultivated over the decades a nice rivalry. It's interesting to see that Koitner was among the first people to direct a film after World War II. So um, he was considered reliable also by the Allies. He was somebody who people found in general trustworthy. He does hit, um, let's say, um, a period of lessened success um, in 1949, 
when uh, he makes one of his craziest films, Epilogue, which is followed by several other films which are really super interesting, but were not really successful. Among others, um, a film that reunites him with Hans Albers called um, Captain Bebe. Um, and it's interesting that this kind of slump, which is not an artistic slump, but really a slump in, um, in um, appreciation, happens during the first period of uh, Konrad Adenauer. So you can really subdivide the, um, the first period of the Federal Republic of Germany, uh, subdivided after the different um, um, cabinets of Adenauer. So <laughs> yeah, four years, Adenauer one, that's really one segment of history. Then you've got Adenauer two, things change then. Then you've got Adenauer three, that's again something different. And then Adenauer four is essentially canceled after two years, but also again, this was something different. And during Adenauer one, Keutner is not having a successful time. Success comes back with Adenauer two. Moment when after the first industrial successes, etc. So Germany is recovering. The um, West Germany is basically becoming a nation from 49 on. It is industrial, industrially recovering. The people are getting wealthy, wealthier. So it's a period of um, uh, growing uh, general prosperity. So West Germany is among the uh, major war nations, the first to actually recover. I think actually Germany, West Germany recovers even before the United States or England. Um, and this recovery goes along with, it seems, something that you could call uh, a jolly hedonism almost. So basically you've got four years of, um, of uh, wild and crazy abandonment. And after that, things get more serious because the matters of the nation get more serious. It's the year of rearmament discussion, etc., etc. And it's then that Keutner again comes back, so to speak, with full force. As uh, not only artistically, as I said, he never wavered. But um, actually, I would even say in that period are his weakest films, which are curiously enough the ones that are generally most widely known, like uh, the Hauptmann von Köpenick. Um, uh, or the um, Teufels General, which are to me a little bit more on the yeah on the whiny good German side. Um, still great films, but ideologically speaking, definitely his laziest films. Um, but the ones that established him again internationally. I mean, the big um, establishing film internationally is uh, actually Die Letzte Brücke, an Austrian production in, I think it was 54. So yeah, basically uh, with, after that, he really gets a lot of international recognition. I think he gets at least one 
doesn't he? I think he gets a Golden Globe sometime at some point. He is nominated at least once for the Foreign Language Academy Award. He is several times in, uh, in at major festivals, among others in Cannes, etc. So he's a very, very recognized filmmaker. And actually recognized enough to be invited to Hollywood. Because he basically goes to Paramount. Hmm. Where he stays... Only for a short time, he makes two films and then uh, returns back to uh, back to Germany. And why would he come back so quickly? I mean, Kreutner <laughs> always said that, um, well, the third film that they offered him was a Western and he was insulted. <laughs> um, but I can only say this can't be true. Why can't it be true? Because if we look at the first film that Kreutner makes after that period... It's a German Western, Der Schinderhannes. Der Schinderhannes is 100% designed as a Western, a German historical Western. So Kreutner can't have been that averse to the idea right. of making a Western, <laughs> so to speak. No, I guess basically Kreutner was used to be really a star and somebody who could do whatever he wanted, more or less. And I guess that um, being a, a studio director in the end was not good enough for him. I mean, why should he be in uh, Hollywood doing contract director work when um, he could be in, uh, in West Germany being the most celebrated and venerated director of his time? Kreutner, as I said, makes some of his greatest films with um, Der Rest is Schweigen, which is his Shakespeare, his, his Hamlet adaptation in the among the um, Ruhrgebiet um, heavy industry uh, nobility, so to speak. Uh, also a film about the Nazi heritage. It's quite an enormous film. Um, you have um, Schwarzer Kies. Black Gravel, which has been finally rediscovered um, by now. You've got Die Rote, his Alfred Anders adaptation, which is fantastic. I would also add um, Das Glas Wasser, his really super stylized, ultra stylish adaptation of a pretty classical uh, theater piece. So he makes real, oh, and Der Traum von Lisi Müller, his uh, almost Tashlin-esque um, economic miracle color uh, musical comedy. So he makes really extraordinary films, but um, this seems to be out of whack with the zeitgeist, with the, crit with the critics, as well as the audience, who is into, let's say, seemingly less refined stuff. Now, when the new German cinema came along, I mean, did they did they respect Koitner or did they see him as kind of cinema, cinema du papa, like the French saw their older filmmakers? I'm not even certain whether they knew the films. I'm I'm not joking here. It's um, I mean, you might know that a few years ago I did for the Locarno Film Festival this big retrospective on. Uh, um, on West German cinema, on West Germany and cinema in the post-war period, and one of our guests there was actually one of the founding figures of um, the young German cinema, um, Edgar Reitz. And Reitz was originally 
completely confused why he would be screened in this context. And at some point, I just had to say, Herr Reitz, did you make films in the 50s? Uh, yes. <laughs> Good. Then this is a program about the 50s. This is not about the old cinema or the young cinema. This is about the period. And you are with your early films like the complete young German cinema, you are part of that period. And whether you like it or not, you are much deeper connected with this period and its endeavors than um, you and most other people ever dared to admit. And um, this which followed a very long talk and it turned out he at some point confessed he hadn't seen a single film in the program that I had back then. He said they, they simply didn't watch the films. The films were essentially, they didn't need to watch them to know that they wanted something different. It was the same thing as with the French and indeed just the same way that uh, Truffaut was later uh, essentially publicly revising everything he had said in his young days. Uh, I mean, I mean, the young German cinema people did not go that far, but... Um, but um, you did see that they were, uh, some of them at least were starting to be a little, mm -mm, maybe we overdid it. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, somebody who paid tribute in a certain way to that cinema kind of early on was actually Hans-Jürgen Süberberg, who would cast uh, Helmut Keutner as Karl May and offer, um, offer um, Keutner really one last great, great, great role. And um, alongside, actually, other luminaries of the old German cinema, so to speak. But it would really take a long time before people like uh, Zuberberg, but also Fassbinder, for example, that they would try to make their piece and connect with this heritage, so to speak. It would take a long time till they they were settled themselves enough to finally maybe accept that those before them were not untalented. Port of Freedom comes out on February 23rd, and The Kaiser of California comes out March 23rd from Kino Lorber. Kino has also already released Koitner's Black Gravel from 1961. There will be links for all of these in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Kelly Robinson, Eddie Von Mueller, and Olaf Mueller, and to Matt Berry at Kino Lorber. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at the podcast app of your choice. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts to help others discover us too. 
And when in Hamburg, visit the Cavern Club to see England's newest musical sensations, the Merseysippi Jazz Band. Why, who'd you think I meant?